Well, I would encourage you to take your Bibles and turn to the Gospel of Luke. We're going to, we're going to cover a lot of ground this morning, uh, but we're going to do it in a different way. Jean-Baptiste Alphonse Carr, that's a French journalist and a critic from the late 19th century, and I would dare say that most of us, including myself, are not familiar with him and are not familiar with his writings. In fact, I actually ran across his name when I was researching the origin of a phrase. It's a phrase that I recall using the other night with friends. It's a phrase I've used a lot. And sometimes when I use these familiar phrases, I want to know where they came from. I want to make sure that the context where that little familiar phrase came from is being used, I'm using it properly. I'm not even going to attempt to say the phrase in French. But the translation is this, and it will surprise you. The translation is, the more things change, the more they remain the same. Jean-Baptiste Alphonse Carr was the first person to write that. Now, I wasn't able to find the context, but I think we know the truism of it. The heart and motivation of people, regardless of the changes in our world, tend to remain the same. No matter how much we advance technologically, no matter how much we advance in science or in medicine or in education, we tend to be a people that there's some base motivations that are still the same. And they're not great motivations. We tend, the people tend to still be greedy and selfish. People tend to still be power hungry. The heart of humanity in its base state is still sinful. Power and money are still driving forces. Whenever you look at anything, how many times have you said, follow the money? Follow the money trail. Money and power still drive people. The more things change, the more they remain the same. And I think that's what makes the Bible, God's Word, such a dynamic and powerful force because the Bible speaks to the heart of humanity. God speaks to the heart of humanity. The heart hasn't changed. And in fact, when I read the Bible, I sometimes will read it and go, oh, I don't remember seeing that before. It's not that it wasn't there. It's that I come at it with a different perspective, a, a different point in my life. God's Word is dynamic. There are so many ways I could have approached this particular section in Scripture today. I could have broken it down into small pieces and we could have gone through a detailed analysis of Luke's account I could have, as some have done, given you a graphic and grotesque detailed description of the physical torture and gruesome death of crucifixion, one of the worst deaths that was ever designed by humans. I could have looked with you at all the prophetic statements that are made and fulfilled. We could have looked at it from a legal perspective and, and looked at the fact that Jesus, subjected to several trials, was declared innocent by the state four times. We could have looked at the fact that Jesus 
purposefully made statements to, in essence, seal his own fate, as he was fully aware that he was fulfilling the plan of God. I will let you know I wrestled with all of this. And then I read one sentence. A person made a statement and said, look at the responses of the people in the trial of Jesus. I had never done that before. But I'm going to do it with you today. I want to walk through the responses of the different people, the different characters in the trial of Jesus. The main characters in this drama, as it were. And I think you'll discover, as I did, two things. People's responses to Jesus haven't really changed much in 2,000 years. But then... I want us to end with that question that I asked in my prayer. What is my response to Jesus today as I live out my life day in and day out? So we're going to work our way through these responses, the people involved. Now last week, and and in fact if you want to be right where I am, I'm going to start in uh, chapter uh, 23, or actually chapter 22, and I'm going to be back uh, right around verses 60 to 63 in that area. But we're going to work through, we're not going to go through every single verse, we're going to kind of work through in chunks. Uh, Last week we ended with Peter, right? Peter's denial, And, and I know we kind of pile up on Peter. Uh, but I want to make this brief, but he shows us one of the responses to Jesus. If you'll recall, uh, when Jesus was healing people, when Jesus was performing miracles, feeding thousands, walking on the water, Peter was all in. He was all in. Remember, he made declarations. If everybody falls away from you, Jesus, I'll follow you. I will go to the death for you. But remember, When he was challenged, standing around that fire, around that fire pit in the courtyard of the high priest's house, when he was challenged three times, he denied vehemently that he knew Jesus. The risk of being exposed as a follower of Jesus was greater than the risk of standing with him. And Peter reminds me of some people when it comes to following Jesus. I put it in this phrase, Jesus is good When things are good. You know, as long as life is rather good and somewhat routine, Jesus is good. Jesus is just all right with me, a 1970s rock group sang. But let life throw a curveball at us. Let things not go away the way they're planned. Let my health not not hold up the way I planned for it to hold up. Let disappointment come in. Let me get mistreated by another. And, and let me think that maybe Jesus isn't there when I needed him and all of a sudden he's not so good anymore. Some people, when life doesn't work the way they wanted to, will react in anger like Peter did. Others will just drift away. I've had those sad conversations with people that tell me I lost my faith and I want to ask them why, what happened. And and oftentimes it has to do with disappointment and frustration and, and people calling themselves Christians but not acting like it. And they said, forget it, I don't want it. Jesus is good when things are good, but when things don't match my expectations, I'm going to look elsewhere. See, Jesus didn't promise us 
a lot of nice stuff. Jesus didn't promise us a life of ease and fairness. Jesus himself said in John 16, in this world you will have trouble. The word trouble can be translated pressure. It can be translated stress. But be of good cheer, I've overcome the world. Jesus is saying, I am greater than the stress that you face. I am greater than the trouble that you face. But you've got to trust me and be of good and know that I've overcome it. One thing we all need to be careful is that we don't become the ones who try to win people into the kingdom by painting a rosy picture that's not realistic. I'm going to tell you, Jesus gives us peace in the middle of struggles, but he doesn't always take away the struggle. Jesus gives us peace in the middle of the storm, but he doesn't always take away the storm. Let's not pretend that life with Jesus is always hearts, flowers, and puppies, or kittens if you're a cat person. Sometimes people react to Jesus like Peter did. Jesus is good when things are good. We go right into that to another group of people. The the soldiers, the men that were guarding Jesus. The men that were supposed to be holding him for trial. The men who were guarding Jesus began to mock him, Luke says in verse 63, and beating him. They blindfolded him and demanded, prophesy, who hit you? And they said many other insulting things of him. You see that again in chapter 23 and verse 11. It was Herod and his guards that will eventually do that. And they fall into the category of another group of people. These are people that say, don't take Jesus seriously. This is prior to further beatings that he would take and a crown of thorns put on his head. The soldiers didn't take Jesus seriously. He was somebody to to mock, somebody to, to make fun of. He was someone that they weren't to be interested in. You know, there are so many people that respond to Jesus that way today. He may have been a a good teacher. He may have been a a moral person, but don't take him seriously. He falls in the category for some people of that emotional crutch that some people need to get through life. And and others go, I don't need an emotional crutch. I got this on my own. I can handle this. And so they don't take Jesus seriously. I can stand on my own two feet. Jesus is taken before the religious leaders. We pick that up in Luke chapter 23 and verse 68. Let me read the account. At daybreak, the council of the elders of the people, both the chief priests and the teachers of the law, met together. Jesus was led before them. You notice nobody asked, hey, wait a minute, who mistreated this person? Wait a minute, he's got bruises on him. We didn't bring him this. They didn't care. If you are the Messiah, they said, tell us. Jesus answered, if I tell you, you will not believe me. And if I asked you, you would not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the mighty God. They all asked, are you then the Son of God? He replied, you say that I am. 
Then they said, why do we need any more testimony? We've heard it from his own lips. And the whole assembly rose and led him off to Pilate. The religious leaders fall into this category. Jesus is a nuisance. And he needs to be removed or at least ignored. But for them, it was to be removed. Jesus is a nuisance and he needs to be removed. Jesus had not fit their notions of who the Messiah would be. He's a bother. He puts us in a bad light. He challenges us. He questions our authority. He questions our traditions. The people are being drawn to him. They're being attracted to him. We need to stop that now. They did everything they could to, in their minds, bait Jesus into condemning himself, and they were thrilled when he gave them what they thought they wanted. But you look carefully at his words in Luke 22, 67, and 68. Those words were not seen for what they were really saying because these people were blinded by their own purposes. You see, he's saying from this point on, what he says, you will see the the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the mighty God. He's saying from this point on, I have power and authority over you. I sit in judgment over you. They didn't get that. They were so blinded by their drive to remove the nuisance from their midst. When you look at their constant badgering of Pilate, as we will in a minute, they're pushing him for a conviction. One can see how badly they wanted Jesus removed. In fact, if you look at the end of Matthew's gospel, you'll see that it was these same leaders that came up with a story. When the, when the guards went to them and said, he's gone. The, the, the tomb's empty. And they said, don't worry, we got this covered. You just tell Pilate that you fell asleep, which, by the way, no guard would ever admit because it was the automatic death sentence. We'll smooth it over with him, and we'll tell him that the disciples came and stole the body. Yeah, the disciples, you know, those really burly guys that ran, those guys that were hiding, shivering and shaking in an upper room that didn't even want to come out. Yeah, those guys. Yeah, they went and stole the body. His message was not to be taken seriously. He is a nuisance to be removed. They take Jesus to Pilate. Pilate questions him. His first response is, I find no basis of charge for him, Luke 23, 4. But they insisted on it, and they said he's stirring up all of Galilee, and Pilate sees a way out. He realizes if he's from Galilee, that's Herod's jurisdiction. And he sends him up to Herod. Herod is excited. Luke says Herod has been wanting to see Jesus for a long time. Herod wanted to see Jesus. He wanted to, to hear from him. He wanted to see him work. Think about that for a minute. The word of Jesus had gotten up to the highest echelons of local Roman government. Jesus makes an impact. But for Herod, Jesus is just a curiosity. For some people, Jesus is just a curiosity. Herod, according to Luke 23, 8, 
He wanted to see him perform a sign. In the classic Andrew Lloyd Webber musical lyrics by Tim Rice rock opera that came out in 1971 and has been redone several times after that, Jesus Christ Superstar, they got Herod's character right. In his solo, Herod says this, So you are the Christ, the great Jesus Christ. Prove to me that you're divine. Change my water into wine. That's all you need to do. Then I'll know it's all true. Later on, he says in the same song, So you are the Christ, the great Jesus Christ. Prove to me that you're no fool. Walk across my swimming pool. If you do that for me, I'll let you go free. Jesus didn't even respond to Herod. He didn't even lower himself to give a response. And Herod was angry. And he and his soldiers ridiculed Jesus. They mocked him. They dressed him up in a robe and they sent him back. When Jesus is just a curiosity, then all people want is to have their curiosity satisfied. They aren't looking for transformation. They aren't looking for a, 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 someone to put their faith in. They just want a show. They're looking for a magician, not a savior. Jesus didn't put on a show for Herod. Jesus won't put on a show for you and me. You can go back through history and there have been time and again where different individuals, atheists has, have stood up at a podium with a stopwatch and says, if God is true, I command him to strike me dead in a minute and they'll start the stopwatch and nothing happens because God doesn't put on a show. When the show is all that some people want, and it doesn't come, then like Herod, they reject Jesus. We come back to Pilate. No one in the crucifixion account was more concerned about his own political capital than was Pilate. For Pilate, Jesus is politically expedient he declared jesus innocent three separate times and yet he still gave in to the political pressure the pressure of the pharisees and he turned him over to be crucified you see uh, and, and there's an interesting tension going on see on the one hand Pilate is all about the politics of the situation you see, for him to keep peace in Jerusalem, for him to keep a riot down in Jerusalem, makes him look good to his superiors. And the fact is, we find out in Luke's gospel that after this whole thing, he and Herod, who had been political enemies, became political allies. So he's kind of building his political capital. For him, it was all about keeping the peace and not getting anything ruffled up. So, sentencing Jesus to death for Pilate was a politically expedient move. But here's the tension, a tension that I can't resolve. We know 
that this was the fulfillment of prophecy. So on the one hand, God is sovereignly acting. On the other hand, Pilate is responsible for his actions. Jesus is politically expedient. Sentencing Jesus to death keeps the peace. Sentencing Jesus to death makes him look good in the Roman eye. Let's get rid of the riffraff that would destroy the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. Sentencing Jesus to death makes him look good in the eyes of Herod and the religious leaders who held sway in Jerusalem. Jesus then and now is not a person we can use to make ourselves look good or to advance some sort of personal or political agenda. That's not why he came. History has not been kind to Pilate, nor really should it be. See, when someone uses the name of Jesus just for personal advancement, that eventually blows up. They're eventually discovered. Their actions are revealed for what they are. They were truly involved in a self-absorbed power grab. But here's the downside of that. When Jesus is used just for a political advantage, it hurts the name of Christ everywhere. Now, I believe the name of Christ is greater than all of that. But it just makes our task as those who follow him a little bit harder. Two other people on our list of respondents. One speaks. The other does not. Their responses are completely different than what we've seen. We read about the first one that I'll talk about. He was one of the men that was there because he had committed crimes. One of the men hanging on one of those crosses because he knew he was guilty. Verse 39, the one thief challenges his partner in crime and he says the he says verse the first one says aren't you the messiah save yourself and us that's the first one do you get what he's saying we're all in this together obviously you're as guilty as we are so if you save yourself bring us along if you break out take us with you we'll be part of your posse let's go together But the other thief realizes there's a great difference between them and Jesus. See, if news of Jesus had reached the upper echelons of Roman government, then news of Jesus had also reached the dregs of society, as it were. The the low of the low. Everybody had known, and there was a point in time, I believe, where the nation of Israel knew about this person, Jesus, whether they had seen him or not. We saw about Zacchaeus earlier on. Zacchaeus wanted to see Jesus. In fact, if you knew Jesus was coming to town, you wanted to be there. You wanted to see what was going to happen, whether it's just for the show or whether because you knew there was something in your life that needed to change, people wanted to see Jesus. And and this man had obviously heard Jesus. In fact, the language is such that it wasn't a one-time prayer. Repeatedly, Jesus is saying, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. That's not the words of a criminal being sent to death. That's the words of a Savior praying forgiveness on those who are 
perpetrating this. Father, forgive them. He had heard that. Maybe, maybe he heard it when Jesus looked down to John and said, take care of my mom. That's my 21st century paraphrase. But that's what he's saying. This is your mother. This is your son. John, take care of my mom. Make sure she has everything she needs. Take care of her. He, he heard that. He, no doubt, Matthew's account tells us that Jesus was given offered wine mixed with gall. The gall was like a numbing agent. And and so earlier on, he's offered that. And he refused that. He wasn't going to let anything numb the pain that he was going to say. And he saw that. He had to notice that Jesus didn't rail against those who mocked him. He didn't say, oh yeah, let me down from here. I'll show you who's boss. He, He had to notice that. And so he makes this great statement of faith and testimony in verse 42 Jesus remember me when you come into your kingdom Jesus is there room for me Jesus is 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 it too late for me I only have a couple hours left to live is it too late Jesus, his response is definite and clear. Truly, I tell you today, there's a definite to that. This is true. You can bank on it. Today, you will be with me in paradise. It's immediate. Today, there's room for you. Today, you're going to be with me in paradise. Today, you have entered into a different relationship with the Father. I take great comfort in that account. You see, it's a reminder to me that as long as someone has breath, there is opportunity to turn to Jesus. It's a reminder that the grace of God is not limited to our performance. The grace of God is not limited to to how we lived our life. Yes, I want you to live a good life. Yes, I don't want you to live the life of a criminal. But the grace of God is not limited to how this man lived his life. It's a reminder that complete forgiveness is offered to all through the cross. I once had somebody ask me, Well, if that's true, why shouldn't I just live the life I want to live and right before the end go, dear God, please save me from my sins. We were going to be meeting a week later. I said, I want you to think about that for a week and come back and and I want you to answer your own question. A week later, he came back and he goes, Because none of us know when that moment's going to be. I said, you're right. None of us know how lucid we'll be at that moment. And that's why the Apostle Paul, some 30 years later, would write, as God's co-workers, we urge you not to receive God's grace in vain, 
For he says, in the time of my favor I heard you, and in the day of salvation I helped you. I tell you, now is the time of God's favor. Now is the day of salvation, 2 Corinthians 6, 1 and 2. What God's, what we, we can take great comfort from the thief on the cross. We can take great comfort that in that last moment of his life, he had the presence of mind to reach out to Jesus, but we can know that we shouldn't try to bank on that. You see, what the thief of the cross tells me is Jesus is there when I have nothing left. Jesus is there when I am at my rope's end. Jesus is there. And, I, and that is a response to Jesus. When he had nothing left, he reached out to Jesus and he found him to be there. The old song says, tell it to Jesus, my friend. You'll find that he'll always be there. We have one more response. This person never says a word throughout the entire account. We don't know what happened to him after the crucifixion. He never asked to be helped. And yet he's the first beneficiary of the death of Jesus. You see, he too had stood trial. He too had been condemned to death on a cross. In any other scenario, he would have died a nameless entity in the ancient world. But Pilate's sense of political expediency brings this person to the forefront. You see, it was the custom, Luke tells us, of the governor to release one prisoner as, as requested by the people at the Passover. It was sort of this display of goodwill from the Roman government. Luke tells us that Barabbas, chapter 23, verse 16, Barabbas, or verse 19, Barabbas had been thrown in prison for insurrection in the city and for murder. Barabbas had somehow caused a riot. He had somehow started something. In fact, if you were a zealot, like Simon the Zealot, Barabbas is one of your heroes. His poster's on your bedroom wall because he had gone against the Roman government and somebody got killed in the process and hey, it's collateral damage. Barabbas is the guy. He's the man. And the people wanted Barabbas. He was known by the leaders. He was known by the people and they kept calling for his release. The life of Barabbas was exchanged for the life of Jesus. Jesus, the righteous, was substituted for Barabbas, the unrighteous. And there is a sense this morning that Barabbas represents us all. You see, before God, we're all guilty. Before God, we all deserve punishment. Before God, we've all earned the wages of sin, which is death, eternal separation from God. We are Barabbas. Oh, we may not have led a rebellion. We may not have taken a life, but we have all sinned against God because all sin, no matter how great or small, is sin against the living God. It's speculation about what happened to Barabbas. But when you and I choose to believe that Jesus was who he claimed to be, the son of the living God, the God-man who was obedient even to death on the cross, we can say like I think Barabbas should have said, Jesus died 
and I was given life. Who do you say Jesus is? How do you respond to him? How have you responded to him? One fact is clear. Jesus doesn't leave us with the option of being neutral. In his classic paragraph in Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis says it best. I'm trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Christ. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a good moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That's the one thing we must not say, Lewis writes. A man who was merely a man who, and who said the sorts of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would be either a lunatic on the level with a man who says he's a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man is, was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let's not come up with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He's not left that open to us. He did not intend to. On the day Jesus was crucified, many people made their choice. What's our choice today? And I know you may say, well, Pastor Scott, aren't you kind of preaching to the choir? Why, I prayed to receive Christ when I was 10 years old, or I prayed to receive the Christ three weeks ago. I've made my choice. I'm going to tell you, you make your choice every day. Every single day we wake up and we choose, what will we do with Jesus? Because sometimes some people think it's expedient to leave Jesus right here in this room. To go out and to live my life how I choose to live my life Sunday through Saturday. To make the decisions that are most convenient for me Sunday through Saturday. And I'll pick Jesus up when I come through the door again next Sunday. If I show up. We choose what we will do with Jesus every day. Is he Lord, master, leader of your life, just as you have trusted him to be the forgiver of your life? How do you respond to Jesus? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for showing us that the responses of people 2,000 years ago to Jesus are not a lot different than the responses today. But Lord, more importantly than all of that, remind us again this morning. As we walk away from this place in a few minutes, as we close down our Facebook in a few minutes, remind us that every day we choose how we respond to you. And Lord, may our response truly be that Jesus is first, that he leads, that he guides, that he directs my life. That Jesus is the one who, when he left, sent the Holy Spirit from the Father to indwell us, to guide us, to teach us, to convict us. May we always put you first. In Jesus' name, amen.
So while uh, Charlene is coming back to the piano and the worship team is coming up, uh, one family news tomorrow evening at 7 o'clock. We do have worship team rehearsal. If you would like to come and see what that's all about, we would invite you to come and join us tomorrow at 7. You may want to just come and watch and say, I just want to come. Because, you know, even though we, we practice and we run over things a few times and everything, it ends up being a, a really time of unique worship. So anyway, I'll let you know that. I'll switch mics here and we'll get going. We've got three songs that we're going to sing for you. The, the last one we're going to introduce with a little bit of the instruments playing as you read the words, because we're, we're learning that some of the old hymns that like some of us grew up with are still kind of new, so we're going to learn some new ones.